Well, good morning, everybody. Um, man, okay, first of all, I just, I needed, uh, I, okay, let me say this. I really appreciate uh, Alex and Lizzie leading for us this morning and their uh, ability to, to hear from God and, and obey Him. Luke, put that, uh, the first song in that last set there. I forgot, the, what was the name of that one, Alex? Life Defined. Put the first verse of Life Defined up there for me. Not the first song in the set, the second half of the set. I think it was Life Defined. Is that Life Defined? Okay, that ain't the one. I will look up. Thank you. Yeah, all the worries of this world, I'll lay them at your feet and surrender every anxious thought for perfect peace, your perfect peace. So um, I'm preaching at PDC tonight, and, and that's a little bit stressful because I don't know if you know this or not, but I don't speak Spanish, uh, at least not, uh, not enough to preach in another language. Um, and so this weekend, I um, was preparing for two sermons, and, and there's the stress that comes with that. Because that's not something I'm used to doing. And, and so like this morning, Bethany drove here and I just, I'm, I'm kind of laid back in the seat. And she's like, did you take some medicine? And I was like, it's not a headache, it's stress. <laughs> and then I got here this morning and we're kind of getting things set up. And I'd forgotten that Ben and Anna were going to be out and Luke was going to run uh, the slides for us. And so I went up there to talk to Mike and I bumped our computer that does all our projection stuff and killed it. Um, like not kidding that it won't recognize the hard drive. And so we're using my laptop, which thankfully I had it with me, but I needed this, this verse this morning. And that's what I'm, that's my point is I had a lot of stress happening this morning. So I appreciate you guys, um, just being obedient to God and, and sharing what he has you share. Um, thanks everybody for the, the testimony this morning. Uh, it was wonderful. And it looks like I'm not the only one who needed to kind of chill out this week, right? And let God do whatever he needed to do. Um, all right. So last week we finished up Luke chapter one, which I've been listening to this podcast and, and they're going through one book of the Bible every day. And at the end of the episode, he plays this little sound. It's like reminiscent of a video game where it goes, Bloop, you've just leveled up. I feel like we just leveled up because we finished chapter one. We only got like 20 something left to go and we're in March already. So it's going to be fun. Um, but last week, we looked at the last part of, of chapter one where it's Zachariah's prophecy um, and at the time of the naming of John. And remember, this is, this is his response coming out of almost a year of not being able to hear or speak and tell everybody what God's been doing as when he was in the temple and then through his life and his wife's life as they give birth to this child. So this is a big moment. We talked a lot about prophecy and we learned that prophecy is an oral divine message um, that's mediated through an individual that is directed at a person or a people group with the elicits specific purpose to get a response, to get a specific response. That's what prophecy is about. We also learned that anyone who's filled with the Holy Spirit could be a prophet as God leads them. So as God would give a person words in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and today as God gives you a word to speak over someone, you can fulfill that role. We saw that Zechariah began to share after He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was an important distinction, that prophecy is not something that comes from us. It's something that comes out of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Um, and we recall that, that God, or Zachariah recalls that God said he would do what he would do in the past. And then uh, Zachariah kind of highlights that and shows that God is fulfilling his promises through uh, the work in his life. And then Zachariah prophesied that John's commission was to shine a light on those living in darkness to prepare a way for the Lord. And we kind of identified with that a little bit, that our goal, matter of fact, I saw um, a Facebook post this morning from a group that I'm in, a 
pastors of small churches, and it was kind of out of this text. It was that we are to be John the Baptist, that we are to shine a light in the darkness, preparing people's hearts for Jesus. We talked about how important it is for us as believers to pay attention to what God's doing and saying in our lives, and how one of the, or one of the tools that we can do in listening to God is to write that stuff down, especially if you're unsure. God, is this you or is this me? How do I know? Every morning when you spend time with the Lord or every day, whatever time of day that is for you, as you are think you're hearing from God, write that stuff down. And then over time, you can look back and you can see either the clarity of the message that God has been saying, because if God is speaking something, he's going to continue to speak that until you follow through. Or you'll see that that message kind of jumps around and that's a flag that, hey, I think that's me. That's my heart, not necessarily God. And that's a super important thing for us. By doing that, we're going to gain great confidence in the message and our ability to clearly hear from God. If we're writing that stuff down and we're seeing the same message over and over and over again, it's like that last song we just sang where we're going to look back at all the things that God has said, and that's going to give us the ability to look forward and have faith for the future because of the consistency of God's work in our lives. Today we're going to pick up at the beginning of chapter 2 with the birth of Jesus. And we're going to see that, that the same preparatory work that God's been doing in the life of John the Baptist, he's also doing in the life of Jesus. All the stuff that was happening like from way back in the day all the way up to John's birth, God's been doing that even more in the life of Jesus. And we're going to see that as we walk through chapter 2. And I want you to, to notice Luke's intentionally comparing these two men, John and Jesus, because he wants his readers, he wants you and I to understand that while God is doing a divine work in John's life, Jesus is far greater than John is. Because the, we're going to see this as we study through the book of Luke, that there's a lot of people who are going to look at Jesus and say, yeah, he's a great guy, but he's just another prophet. He's just another spokesman for God. And Luke is making the case that Jesus is not just a prophet. While prophets are important, we talked about that last week. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the Son of God. So we're going to see that play out as we read through this book. So Luke wants to, his readers to clearly see that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so we're going to pick up in the narrative where we left off last week. Look at this with me. We're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 today. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. All right, raise your hand if you've heard this passage before. Hey, everybody in this room should probably raise their hand because this is what we talk about at Christmas, right? Remember, um, I was looking back at, at my sermon notes on January 1st this year, the, day, the week after Christmas, we read through the entire chapter of Luke 2. And I was telling Carrie when we first started this study, I kind of contemplated, like, should we go back through that? Because I kind of taught through that, you know, two months ago or three months ago now. Um, but God said, no, we're going to go through it again. And I'm excited about that because, as I mentioned before, because we're not in the Christmas season, it kind of helps us to look at this story from a little different perspective, a little bit different angle. Um, obviously, the birth of Jesus uh, is worth celebrating, right? And we do that at Christmas time. 
But since we're not in the Christmas season, we're going to look at this a little differently. Today we have two main ideas that God wants to highlight for us. The first one is that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem as ordered to register for the census. And I, I, and I, I worded that particularly. A couple of things that I want you to understand out of this is that this was not something that was voluntary. It was an order, right? And what happens when you're ordered to do something? What is the expected response? You do it, right? Like, think of Darth Vader chokehold if you don't do what you're supposed to do, right? Everybody getting that imagery now? Like, when you're ordered by Darth Vader to do something, you have to do it. That's the way it works, okay? So, this is not an optional road trip. Joseph and Mary were not like, you know what would be great? A trip to Bethlehem. Let's load up and go because you're about to have a baby, right? That's not how this played out. The second thing is that there's a lot of debate um, over Luke and Matthew's claim that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem for a census, now, I, that was new information for me when I was studying this out. It was there, and I always was like, yeah, there was a census, that's why they went. But historians that look back and look at that kind of thing, when they're looking at Roman history, because Rome is the one that says Caesar Augustus ordered this census, they don't see a census happening in the same time frame. Um, if we look back at those historical documents, there's no record of this census, but that doesn't completely rule it out. It would have been very normal for Rome to want to know how many citizens were there to ensure that they're getting the, amount, the right amount of taxes, right? We understand that in our lives. We understand the tax system and how the government wants to make sure they're getting all the money out of you can, out of you as they can, right? Everybody's familiar with that. Same thing. Also, Caesar Augustus was fairly new to power. And so it would make sense that he'd want to, a legitimate headcount to fund his both political and military expeditions. That's how that worked. It wasn't typical also for women to be counted in a census, right? That's, we've, we've talked about that many times before, how in those days, women were not really, when they're counting people, women and children were not in those numbers. They're counting the men. However, during that same time, there was a poll tax that was done in Syria where women were required to register. And, and I don't know if you remember from our, our passage that we just read, but look back at verse 2. It says, Quinarius was governing Syria. Right? And so this guy that is calling for, Caesar is the head guy, right? He's the one that's calling for the census, but that goes through those guys that are underneath him. So it would make sense that this guy that orders a poll tax in Syria where women are supposed to go, that, that also marry, that women in that time frame in the, the region of Judea would also have to go. So there's a lot of opinions about why she went. Some of them make sense to me. Um, some of them don't. But Here's, here's what I want us to understand out of this, is God, had, God was doing something in this. Interestingly, this required census. What, we, what I think we need to understand is that it wouldn't have been weird for them to have to go do this. This was something that was not uh, inoffensive to their culture. It was normal for Israelites to go and do a census in this way. Matter of fact, David, when he was in power, God told David to have a census so that he could get a, an official count of how many uh, aged men there were that could, that could fight in his war. He needed to know how many soldiers he had. And, so to, and, and the way he did that was had all the men go to their hometown. So this was kind of a normal thing for them to be able to do. While there's some ambiguity around the historical timeline of this text, there's no record of the other apostles saying anything different. In fact, Matthew, in his recollection of this, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew says during the time of 
Herod the Great. And Herod was put in place as the Jewish ruler over Judea during this same time frame. So they agree in that way. If you struggle with any of that, feel free to go back and check that out for yourself. I kind of got lost in the history of all that when I was doing my outlines. I took, spent more time than I should have. But I don't want us to miss the point of what Luke's trying to show us. Mary and Joseph went because they were ordered to go. And Luke is showing that God can and does orchestrate global events for his purpose. This is a big deal, right? Think about what it means for the people who are living at this moment, the people that Luke is writing to. They have lived under oppressive rule for generations. And the birth of the Messiah happened exactly as God said it would, even though these superpowers, quote-unquote, have been in control for hundreds of years, right? Remember we talked about they had the Persian occupation. They've had the Assyrian occupation. They've got, now got the Roman occupation. And all of these superpowers seem to be directing God's people. But in the midst of all of those things happening, God is still doing the things that he says he's going to do. Jesus being born in Bethlehem was to fulfill the prophecy from Micah. And that was the birthplace of King David. Flip back to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And it says, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So Micah the prophet is prophesying that the Messiah, who's going to be born in the line of David, that's the, when he says the origin from antiquity, from ancient times, he's referring to the line of David. And David is the son of, of who? Adam, right? We see this play out through scripture that Adam was the first man, David is a descendant of Adam, and now Jesus is a descendant of David. And so Luke is making the point, Micah is making the point, that God has been orchestrating all of this all through history to accomplish his purpose. And I want us to see today, too, that Joseph and Mary lived a normal life, and they followed the authority that they were under, right? And I know that that may seem a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, I'll come back to it. It may seem odd for us to say that, that we need to live under the same authority that we're given. But Jesus, remember, taught that. I want to show you something. Luke, put that map up there for me. Because I want you to see that this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was not one that an expecting mother was going to do. Can you all see that very well up there? We've, I've showed you a map very similar to this not long ago when we talked about Mary's journey to go see Elizabeth. Do you all remember that? If you see that orange line that's up there, that's about 95 miles that Mary went on a donkey. I was thinking about this this morning. If you've ever been expecting a child, you know about all the wives' tales of the things that you can do to get that baby going. One of them is walking, drinking raspberry tea. There's a whole list of them. Um, I think riding a donkey 95 miles should be on that list. I'm not suggesting that you try it, but it obviously worked, okay? And on top of it being 95 long, it would have taken them about three or four days to make this journey. On top of it being 95, long, 95 miles long, I went on, on Google today because I like maps. I kind of nerd out on that because I make them for work. But there's an elevation gain of 9,300 feet and a descent of 7,900 feet. They went over a mountain range on a donkey to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I say all that to reiterate that this was not a joy ride. Mary didn't decide to get on a donkey and go that far because she wanted to. There's something bigger at play here. Luke wants us to see that God worked in the simplicity and the normalcy of everyday life. Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, to the place where he was born of his ancestry, 
to register for a census so that they could pay the proper amount of tax. It doesn't, it's not in our normal vocabulary to think about our paying taxes being part of God's work in the, the scheme of all that He's doing, right? But it's part of it. That's part of what God is using in our lives to bring about His purposes. Luke wants us to see this for ourselves because it's important in framing the way we see Jesus. God had Jesus born in this way to these people for a very specific reason. So what's that reason? This is point number two. Luke is drawing on the common theme that we're going to see all throughout this book on the upside down nature of God's kingdom. We've talked about this before. But I want us to understand, I want us to think about for a moment, from the time that sin entered the world, people's perception of God has been skewed. Do you remember Satan's lie that he told Eve when he convinced her to disobey God? He said, did God really say? Satan has been calling into question God's character from the very beginning. That's what he did to to make Adam and Eve decide to disobey God. He made them question him. No matter how much God did for his people over the course of history, and no matter how much miraculous work he did for them and around them, they still didn't see God for who he was. The image that comes to mind for me every time I think about this is when we went through the book of Exodus where God leads, God does all the miracles in front of Pharaoh, right? They see that. They're a part of that. It affects them. And then finally Pharaoh lets them go. God leads them out into the wilderness. He splits the Red Sea. They cross through it. The, the Egyptians follow them in. The sea collapses on them. The Egyptian army is destroyed, killed completely. There are a couple... That, Just imagine how incredible that would be. And then just a few days later, they're out in the wilderness. Everybody's starting to get thirsty and they're getting cranky and they're getting tired and they're getting stressed out. And they say, we should have just stayed in Egypt and been slaves. It's hard for me to comprehend in my mind how that could happen. But the truth is, is that that's not that uncommon. To see God's work and to go, man, that's incredible. And then to immediately forget about it a few days later. After all that that people see God do, they still don't really see Him. God had worked through Moses and Aaron to do all these miraculous things, and yet people still didn't trust God. Their understanding was weak, and their perception of God had been skewed by generations of hearing about these gods, little g, in Egypt. And they're equating the God. Remember what God told Moses to tell the Egyptians when he got there? And they said, who is this God that he's speaking for? He said, tell them, I am. It means I am the God. But their perception of God had been skewed because of the culture that they lived in. They saw all these other Egyptian gods, little g, and they assume that the God, I am, Yahweh, is the same kind of little God. Their perception was messed up. Even though God was working in their midst, they still didn't understand. And we see this same storyline playing out repeatedly in the history of God's people this is not an isolated event with Israel in this moment in time I was thinking about this this morning this same kind of thing happens in the church today we saw it happen recently with the revival stuff that was happening in Asbury there were a lot of people who were praising God for that saying man this is incredible but there were equally if not more people who were skeptical and saying that's not God that is people doing a thing This is why Jesus had to come. Jesus came back because God's people didn't know God. They didn't understand Him. 
So Jesus comes. He had to reveal to us the nature and the character of God. All through this book in the New Testament, we see this upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Kings aren't born in lowly places, right? They're not put in animal feed troughs. From, I don't know why, but the imagery of it's in my mind when a king is born is from Aladdin when, uh, main character, help me out here, Aladdin, hello, y'all, y'all awake? Aladdin is pretending to be Prince Ali, and remember the genie's got all the genie and the camels and all that, and the elephants, and they're parading in town, Prince Ali, y'all follow me, right? That's what's in my mind, that's how a king is presented, not... Not born in the place where animals sleep and, and swaddled and put in a feed trough. And you might think, well, yeah, but Jesus was born in the city of David. Like, that's got to be important, right? But remember, what was David before he was king? He was a shepherd, right? He was a nobody. I was thinking about this morning as we're worshiping. This hadn't occurred to me, but, but Moses... God used him mightily, right? We can agree to that. Moses was a murderer who had a speech impediment and said, God, I know you want me to do this thing, but I can't do it. And God said, okay, fine, take, take your brother Aaron with you and he'll help you out. There's character after character after character. You look at the, at the prophets, you look at the minor prophets, and you see these men who are weak. These men who are not the kind of people that you put in leadership. And that's the, that's the kind of people that God says, no, no, this, this is the one that I want. David, the smallest among all his brothers, the least likely to be a conquering king. And David said, that's the one I want right there. Or God said, that's the one I want. We're going to see Jesus spend the vast majority of his time with a bunch of nobodies that lived when he lived. Wasn't the rich or the powerful that Jesus is ministering to and taking care of. It was the poor, it was the destitute. God had Jesus born in such a humble estate Because he wants us to understand that the things that we think make someone important don't matter. It's not about having a lot of stuff. It's not about being heralded before other people. It's not being put on a pestle and saying, look how great this person is. Look how great you are. Jesus is role modeling for us the fact that God uses the most humble of us all the most powerfully. One of the commentaries I read this week said the irony of the most important event in history taking place in a manger should not be lost sight of. It reveals how God elevates the lowly and the humble and rejects the proud and the mighty of this world. You would think if God's going to send the Messiah, and I guarantee you the spiritual leaders of the day thought if the Messiah shows up, he's going to show up in the temple, right? We don't know how he's going to get here, virgin birth, that all sounds really strange, But when he gets here, like, we're going to know about it. It's going to be a big to-do, right? We've talked about before how they're expecting a conquering king. They're expecting a king to come in and defeat Rome. That's the kind of king they were looking for, not a kid that was born to some nobodies in in a stable. That's not what they were looking for. Church, I'll be the first to admit that this character trait of God that the American church needs to learn. This was something that I have needed to learn over the course of, of, the course of my life, that, that it's not the rich and the powerful and the popular that our focus is supposed to be on. I, I was thinking about this last night. I don't remember when I learned this or who taught me, but I remember very specifically early on in my youth ministry when I was 
probably 20 or a little younger, when I was just learning, somebody taught me that who I needed to focus on reaching out to was the popular kids at the local high school. Because if I could get them convinced to come to church, they'd bring all of their friends with me. The rest of the kids from the high school would follow them. I'll be honest with you, that just feels gross coming out of me right now. Right? But that was a normal tactic. It still is a normal tactic today. And that's the opposite of the gospel. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't show up to the temple and be like, where's the high priest at? Y'all, come on, bring you home. He's with you and we're going to all sit down and have a, a shindig. Today, in the kids' story, Jesus talked to the woman at the well. Do you know why she was at the well at the middle of the day? Because she was an outcast. But that's who Jesus spent time with. That's who Jesus shared the truth of the gospel with. That's who went into the town and told the whole town, you got to come meet this guy who told me everything I've ever done. He is the Messiah. She evangelized to the whole town because Jesus took the time to spend with her. This is the upside-down kingdom that we're talking about. Look at verses 6 through 7 again. Look at the details that Luke gives us about this birth. He says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth. That's what we call swaddling. Some translations use that word. And laid him in a manger because there was no room for him available in the end. I, I don't know if you've ever looked at an animal feed trough, but that is not the cleanest of places. You know, we, I, I grew up in a lot of churches that did Christmas plays, and their, their manger was like this little X-shaped wooden thing. That may be legit. I don't know. And it had like some nice, pretty clean hay in it. If you've ever watched or looked at the place where animals have been eating, you know what there's a lot of right there? The stuff that comes out the back end too, right? My kids who live on a farm, is the, the place where we feed the cows, is that the cleanest place on the farm? Not at all. You do not wear those shoes back in the house when you come back from feeding the animals, right? It's gross. It's not a crisp, pristine hospital room, Right? My whole life I was taught that the reason that they were there is that there was this innkeeper who had a grudge against them. It, he knew they were social outcasts for some reason. He said, that, no, you can't stay in my place or, or nobody made room for them or anything like that, right? It was always this negative thing that was put on this innkeeper. And that's not where we need to put our focus. What I've learned as I've studied this out is that that's not what was happening. It was... It's worded in a couple of different ways, but look at how this commentator describes this moment in, in verse 7. He says, because there was no room for them in the end. This does not refer to a lack of a hotel room, but a suitable place for Mary to give birth to her son. It does not imply any rejection on the part of a much maligned innkeeper. The inn probably refers to a public caravanissary. I think that's how you say that. A crude overnight lodging place for caravans which was the one lodging place in Bethlehem. They didn't have a Motel 8 with the front light on, okay? That's not how it worked. There were no motels. What, we, this is, what they're describing is what we want in this area might call a lean-to, right, or a pole barn. It was a very, very crude roof, if you will, that the whole, anybody that was caravanning, anybody that was traveling, that's how you did it, them and their animals would all stand underneath this thing. I don't think that it's not that they couldn't have a baby there. I think that Mary and Joseph were looking for a little privacy, right? They're looking for a place to get away so that they can have this baby. 
And if you look at the home structures of those days, typically it was two stories and the lower story was where the animals were kept and the upper story is where the family dwelt. But it wasn't like it was a husband and wife and their children. Usually it was a husband and wife and both of their parents and all of their kids lived in one house. So those things were already crowded. And now we got this huge influx of people coming back to Bethlehem because of the census. And it, it starts to make sense. Mary and Joseph might not have been rejected. They might have just been looking for a quiet spot where there wasn't somebody already there. But God did all of this to show us the kind of king that he was sending. He was doing this to show us his nature and his character. Jesus' birth is God's announcement to the world that his son, this king, this Messiah, is not like everybody else. God's flipping the status quo on its head so that the world can see that what they value and what God values are so far from one another. There's two important lessons that we can take away from this passage, and they're things that we don't necessarily talk about at Christmas time. The first is that God is bigger than us and works through the authorities in our lives. When Caesar called for a census, God was working through that to orchestrate his plan. God was calling the shots, not Caesar, and we need to understand that. As we're going through our lives, and there are things that we're required to do by the government that's over us, we need to understand that just because it doesn't feel good or comfortable does not mean that God is not using that thing in their life. I don't like having to pay the state of Louisiana tax money, but guess what? I have to. That's part of what it means to live in, in Louisiana, for me anyway, in my tax bracket. God's calling the shots. Number two, don't assume that God's goals and agenda are the same as the world's are, because they are not. God can work through this world, but what God places a, a priority on is not the same as what the world puts a priority on. And, and I know that you, you, you hear that statement and you go, duh, obviously. But how often do we get that confused? How often do we look at what's happening culturally and assume that God is a part of that? How often do we look at when something really good happens in somebody's life and we immediately say that was God? Maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't. God's work does not always look the way we think it will. If you look up one day and, and your life as a follower of Christ doesn't look like the rest of the world's, that's okay. That's probably a good thing. As we grow in our faith, as we are becoming more like Christ, Jesus makes it abundantly clear through his life that the world is not going to approve of that. He, he warns us about that. Followers of Jesus should not be surprised if they are not accepted by the world. I cannot tell you how many times I have testified or I've heard testimony in my life group about how friends and family members are frustrated with the people that's sharing the testimony because they're not doing the things they want them to do, Right? As we are following Christ, if we are living in obedience to what he's called us to do, we're going to get some kickback on that from the rest of the world because we're not acting like we're supposed to, right? Mary and Joseph's marriage didn't look like it was supposed to. But God was doing that. God was orchestrating those events to accomplish his purposes in their life. But I also want to say, if we're purposely trying to be different 
for the sake of being different, for the sake of looking different. We're missing the point. That's not the point. The point is us, for us to know God and to walk in obedience to what he's calling us to do. We are different from the world as we are more like Christ. That's the point. Followers of Jesus willingly and purposely allow God to mold their lives to be like his. As we look at the life of Jesus, as we study the book of Luke, we're going to see over and over and over again. Remember, Jesus said, I, I don't do anything on my own accord. I do only what the Father tells me. Jesus is constantly ridiculed and buffeted around by the culture around him that did not approve of the choices that he made. And church, I want us to understand that the same can be true of us. But even in the midst of that tribulation, of those trials, God is still working. God is still accomplishing his promises. And I guarantee you that when Mary and Joseph had Jesus in a stable, swaddled him and put him in a manger, they were incredibly joyful in that moment. Even though they weren't where they wanted to be, even though they had just made this incredibly long journey, and I'm sure they were tired and sore, there's joy in that. Because Jesus... And when we're going through trials, when we're going through tribulations, when we are tired because of all of the things that God had us do, when we're sore because of all the things that God's got us to do, guess what? There's still going to be joy in that because it's Jesus. As we think about this Christmas story, as we think about the birth of our Savior, what we need to remember is that God is working always in our lives. This birth of a king is, is meaningful. It's the most meaningful thing. The birth of this king means that you and I have access to the Father that we never had before. And Jesus, this king, came to reveal the truth and the nature and the character of who God really is so that the world could see it. And our job, church, as we are studying this book, as we are knowing Jesus and making him known, is for us to experience the truth and the nature and the character of who God really is and then to share that with the people that God puts in our lives. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that even when I'm really stressed out, you are still God. That when things break down and don't go the way we plan for them, that you are still working. Father, I ask that you would allow me to trust that more. And to not trust in my own ability to make stuff work. God, I ask that you do that for all of us. That when we're clumsy and kick the computer on accident and things seem like they're falling apart, God, we wouldn't let that stress us out. That we could be focused enough on you that we realize that those things don't really matter. That that's not why we're here. Father, as we're going through this week, as we face um, tribulation and possibly ridicule, for being obedient to you. Father, I ask that you would remind us of who you are and why you've come. Father, that we would find joy in, in being a part of your work. Father, that would be our source of joy, not the affirmation of the world around us. Jesus, we ask for your peace. We ask for your love and your kindness as we, as we live among you and your people. We ask these things in your name.